This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Doug Wilson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Happy, happy to be with you. Thank you. Um, I've wanted to chat to you for a very long time. Uh, you're controversial, and I'm trying to figure out why. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a mystery. <laughs> Surely you must have some idea. You're politically incorrect. I am politically incorrect. That's true. I, I was going to say that one of the one of the reasons I think I get in trouble is that, that I would describe myself as a moderate who never who never moved. Um, so, you know, I I never never I didn't grow up in extreme Christian circles, but I was with the basic fundamentals of the faith, and and my my parents were, were staunch, consistent evangelical Christians. And there was nothing, um, nothing, nothing culturally extreme what we were doing. They were just simply consistent Christians, and they taught me to stay put, and to be very faithful, don't budge, and don't don't let the, the doctrine move you. And what happened, I think, is the world went went crazy. And if you just stay put, that means that all of a sudden you're your extreme dream and and so i'm i would now be labeled uh, uh, uh guilty of hate crimes, hate crimes for example for maintaining the same position on marriage that that obama and hillary clinton maintained during their campaigns for the presidency so so they were as liberals at the time and they were affirming one man one woman for life being the definition of marriage. And the difference is I really meant it. They were just they were just saying whatever they had to say at the time politically. But that's what they said. And those people who really have that as a conviction and, and just said, no, I'm not but I'm not gonna change simply because you guys you guys have um, decided to go live in the world. Why why would I change? So, for those who don't know who you are, what is your background? So, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I live in northern Idaho, which is a state in the Pacific Northwest, upper left-hand corner of the United States. It's a small college town, about 22,000 people here, and the University of Idaho is here. And I've lived here since 1975 and have been the pastor of the same church since... 1977, um, and we've built a classical Christian school here, our school. We've built a classical Christian um, college, New St. Andrews College. We've established a publishing house, Canon Press, that has uh, uh, the Canon Plus uh, website. It has a lot of content material. So we're in a we're tucked away in an out of the way corner of the United States, but thanks to the desktop publishing revolution, and thanks to the digital revolution, we've been um, able to have a reach far beyond our local circumstances. So I've been my main day job is I'm a pastor, and um, 
Um, I've been preaching to the same group of long-suffering saints for 40, 45 years. I, I want to articulate, I, I don't want to chase fads and fashions. Uh, so I, I simply want to be an Orthodox Christian in the evangelical and reformed uh, tradition. I'm a son of the Reformation. I am very grateful for um, Reformation, Reformation heritage, have been, uh, I owe a great debt to the Puritan, who I believe were um, sort of one of our, our taglines here in Moscow is all of Christ for all of life. But we, we believe that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is re relevant everywhere in everything, in marriage, in politics, in education, uh, everywhere. So the Puritans were the last group of Christians historically organized or big enough or cohesive enough to be, be identified who took on that sort of thing as a serious project. And, uh, and we're attempting the same, same thing. When we talk about Christianity, what do we mean? So uh, what I mean is the, cent the center of the Christian faith would be the contents of the Apostles' Creed. Okay, so I've been God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, creation, not Darwin, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, Lord, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of a Virgin Mary. So all the basic historical facts of Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, uh, from which place he will return to judge the living and the dead. That's the content, that's the doctrinal content of the faith. The evangelical side of it is that uh, creed, once articulated, must either be accepted or rejected. If you reject it, you're rejecting it in unbelief. If you accept it, you're accepting it by faith, and that transforms you. If you accept it by faith, then you are uh, regenerated, you are uh, a Christ Christian, You present yourself for baptism at a Christian church, and you commit yourself to following him to be a disciple of his for the rest of your life. So that's the objective side of the Christian school, and then the subjective response to it is something that each individual must uh, do. And it's a message that is worldwide. Yes, it's universal. Uh, small, it's Catholic, small c Catholic. It is something that is uh, relevant to, to every person everywhere. It says in the book of Acts, now commands all men everywhere to repent. Uh, so the, the basic two-step message of the gospel is repent and believe. So you repent of your sins, you repent of all the things that you do that are anger God, that displease God, and that would include things that are politically advantageous or politically applauded, like homosexuality or transsexuality or um, uh, the envy of socialism. All of those things are things that that people are called to repent of, turn away from. And then you leave basically in the content of the Apostles' Creed that Jesus, um, who Jesus is and, and what he did, his, his identity as the Son of God and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And when you, you do that, you are transformed, you're transferred from one humanity, the old humanity in Adam, 
to the new humanity, Christ. It's truly a conservative message because it's conserving what was uh, said originally. Yes, it's conservative. Well, I'd like to I like to tell people that there's a sense in which conservative, and there is another sense in which I'm progressive, uh, but. Conserving and progressing are verbs that require, require a direct object or a referent. Um, so when I say, I'm, if I just walked up to, some, to someone and said, I'm a conservative, am I talking about a, a conservative communist in the Kremlin before the collapse of the Soviet Union? Am I, am I talking about a conservative Mormon who wants to keep hang on to polygamy? Am I talking about a cultural conservative? What What is it that I'm conserving? So... I'm a conservative in the, in the sense that I want to conserve faithfulness to the faith once delivered, that was delivered to, to us, to the Christian church, by means of the apostles. The faith once delivered, so I want to be conservative and faithful to that. But if I say, well, someone might say, might say, well, what sense are you a progressive? I want to conserve everything that the Holy Spirit has done in history up to this point. And I want to progress toward the things that the Holy Spirit has not yet done. So I'm in eschatology, I'm post-millennial, which means that I have an optimistic view of the future um, with regard to the church's coming success in discipling the nations. And that means that there are a number of things that are not yet done, that are not yet accomplished. The nations have not been brought to Christ. The Great Commission says that uh, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go to disciple the nations. So that means America, that means Canada, that means Brazil, that means South Africa, that means all the nations uh, are to be discipled by, by the Christian church, baptized and taught obedience to everything Jesus commanded. That's the Great Commission, that's the church's marching orders, and it applies to every nation under heaven. Is there a sense of every knee shall bow, as in everybody who has ever lived? Yeah. Um, Philippians says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, and the Bible does teach that the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. But if you look in the past, let's say 500 B.C., uh, 500 B.C., it's not the case that most people were believers in Jehovah. Um, so I'm not saying anything will unravel the past or will make errors of unbelief somehow no longer errors of unbelief. But I do believe that the gospel is going to be triumphant and that the, the world will become overwhelmingly Christian. Now, I don't believe that that necessarily means that every last person will be born again, but I believe that the world will be overwhelmingly Christian. How important is Christianity today in the year 2023? Well, it's, I would say it's absolutely crucial. As we, um, as we have entered into clown world, it is obvious that without reference to God, we know what little boys are. Without reference to God, we don't know what little girls are. Without reference to God, we don't know what a human being is. We have no idea. We have utterly and completely lost our way. Um, 
And it used to be said, maybe 50 years ago, it could be said by a non-Christian, oh, that's just common sense or science. Science will tell us what a girl is. Science can tell us what a boy is. Well, not anymore. Um, All the scientific organizations, the medical organizations, all the uh, top big brains in the world have capitulated. They, They don't have any basis for saying up is up and down is down. They, they don't, they're lost. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, I believe that Christians are responsible to speak the truth into this, into this world gone mad. Doug, from where I'm sitting, which is on the African continent, I am an observer of the West slowly imploding. Then would you say that it is perhaps a loss of godliness Oh, yeah, absolutely. The only thing I might differ with, you said the West is slowly imploding. It would be slowly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, uh, someone, there's a Hemingway character somewhere that says, he, who is asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, well, it was two, there was two stages. First, very gradually, and then suddenly. suddenly. You know, you know. <laughs> so, so I think, I think that's how the West has gone spiritually bankrupt. I think it's been uh, very, very gradually since the Enlightenment, basically. So uh, from, from the, the rise of the Enlightenment, uh, the West has been losing its, its faith very, very, very gradually. But then within the last five years, the bankruptcy has become apparent. And it's suddenly, everything is falling apart. And there, there are no certain things anymore. But I love to quote um, G.K. Chesterton and... And Chesterton says somewhere that Christianity has died many times. Um, and I think that, that 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 is what's going on now. But Chesterton said that's that's all right. Christianity has died all, died all uh, many times. But, it, but he said it's all right because the Christians worship a God who knows the way out of the grave. And I think Nietzsche wrote uh, that God is dead. Yeah. And, but the, what happens when you, you fight Christ and God is dead, God was dead for three days, three nights, but, but he knows the way out of the grave. And there, there is no conceivable way that you can outlaw Christianity that will not cause genuine Christianity to thrive and flourish. Uh, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church, as just an early father said. And... We are, we are coming rapidly to the point where it's really going to cost us something to be a genuine Christian. And that, but that means that it's going to be winnowed, we're going to be winnowed down to Gideon's 300. And once we are winnowed down to Gideon's 300, then the Midianites run. How do we push back against this implosion? I think it's just uh, gather together with God's people, find a church where they believe the Bible and are not afraid to uh, preach what it says. Join in yourself to those people, hang out with those people, um, fellowship with those people, and then do the next thing. Um, believe that we don't have to go figure out uh, where to take the battle because I think we're at the stage where the battle is going to come to us. Anybody. Anybody who says, I'm going to, I'm with Christ, I'm going to um, live and die as a Christian, anyone who's committed to that, 
I think he's going to find himself with his hands full. He's going to have, mm. he's going to have plenty to do wherever he is. What are some of the core values that you represent? I represent um, a an unembarrassed allegiance to the Bible. So uh, this is something I learned from my father, uh, and that is never apologize for anything in the Bible. Never back down, never back away or back down from anything in the Bible. Once you've done the exegesis, once you've read the Bible carefully and faithfully, and you know this is in fact what it says, you're done with trying to fit current respectable opinion uh, in with your biblical interpretation. And this is why there's a there's a little optical illusion, a little quirky difference between liberals and evangelicals. Uh, and I'm, t- I'm talking about a compromise situation with both. But when you're reading liberal scholars, oftentimes liberal scholars are more to be trusted with what the Bible actually says than evangelicals are. And that is because evangelicals are stuck with whatever they say the Bible says. So, and a liberal isn't. So a, a liberal can say the Apostle Paul prohibited women from being ministers. Isn't that quaint? Ho, ho, ho. You know, so he can backhand the Apostle Paul, but at least he can be faithful telling us what Paul taught. An evangelical minister who says, we, 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 we are a Bible-believing church. We do things by the Bible here. That means whatever he says the Bible says, he's going to have to do, right? And and people are going to come after him and say, why don't you have any women deacons? Why don't you have any women elders in your church? Why you never had a woman pastor? Well, if he says that this is what the Bible requires, then he's got to, he's sort of stuck with what he says the Bible says. And so evangelicals are under greater pressure to be creative about what the what the Bible really meant to say here was, and we have to look at the Greek. We have to do a Greek works word study. Um, no, no. What you're what you're trying to do is you're trying to make your allegiance to the Bible fit with your hidden allegiance to the world. We do, and we do this on a number of times. We do it on women in ministry. We do it on creation and evolution, the early chapters of Genesis. We do it on whether or not Noah flood and an ark. We do it on on whether Jesus actually fed the multitudes. You know, uh, but when you say, well, "I don't think Jesus actually multiplied the bread and the fish," well, there's a name for that. You're called an unbeliever. <laughs> you, you know, I don't believe that. Well, what is that? That's unbelief. If we're going to be Christians. Let's be Christians all in. Right. You know, not let's not be diluted here. Right. So by extension of what you're saying, women need to be led by men, and that's biblical. Yes. Yes. The husband is the head of the home, as Christ is the head of the church. So when you, in Ephesians 5, and we're told this multiple places in the New Testament, there's no ambiguity about it. Uh, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And, and for the husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church. Church, First uh, Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, um, uh, Peter says the same thing. So wives 
are submissive to their husbands. So when, for example, when I, here's, a, here's a, a, another great example of my radical extremism that consists of me not from my former moderate position. I'm a minister and I'm a minister in a college, college town, which is that I um, preside over many weddings. I've done many weddings. And when I give vows to the groom and the vows to the bride, I won't do a wedding unless the vows include the, vow, the, the bride's vow to obey her husband. Okay, so the husband has to vow to honor and cherish wife, uh, uh, and the wife has to vow that she is going to cherish and obey her husband. That's scriptural. It's also inflammatory, right? because we live in egalitarian in times, that, and, and these egalitarian times want to say of the body, well, that was then, was then, this is now. But why do we stop where we stop? You know, you know, if someone says you have to be Jesus to go to heaven, why can't we say that was then, this is now? But, uh, it, as soon as you start picking and choosing what parts of the Bible you're going to retain and what parts you're going to jettison, uh, uh, there's no principled place to stop. So either... I would say either accept it all or reject it all. Um, as Elijah said on Mount Carmel, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Bill is God, follow him. But n let's be done with this halfway business, trying to straddle both positions. Yes, and when you try and uh, please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Absolutely. And, and the problem is, People don't want to do it. That's the problem. But it's not its not a problem of ambiguity. Uh, it's not as though Paul was stuttering or mumbling. It's very clear what he, he says. We just don't like it. We, right. are, we are living in a very LGBTQ-driven era now, and it's, it's, it's taking right. control of everything. Right. Right. So um, before I'll start with Leviticus, but let let me also tie it in uh, with Romans 1 to prevent people from saying that, well, that's an Old Testament thing. There, there, there are some interpretive challenges for Christians on how you obey the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, uh, Moses never enjoyed a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Um, you, uh, clam chowder was prohibited. There are a number of things that were part of the holiness code that Christians are free from observing. So Christians can eat bacon, and Christians can eat clam chowder. And unbelievers will say, well, why isn't homosexuality in the same category? Well, one of the reasons is that the New Testament legislates against homosexuality as strongly as the Old Testament does. Uh, so, so that's one reason. There are differences between the Old and the New Testament, and the rejection of homosexuality is not one of them. So that's that's the first thing. Second, there are some differences with regard to homosexuality about what are we going to do about it. So, you know, what should the civil penalty be? That's that sort of thing. In ancient Israel, um, uh, someone who is guilty of sodomy would be executed. Someone who had had sex with an animal would be executed, and the animal would be killed. Um, 
in First Corinthians, Paul talks about the effeminate, the the catamite, and the sodomite, uh, and he gives a long list of sins in First Corinthians. And then he says to the Corinthian church, "And such were some of you." Now, I do believe that there is a difference between the testaments on how we conduct our warfare against those sorts of sins. But the the New Testament doesn't redefine sin. The, the homosexuality was an abomination in Leviticus, and it's an abomination in Romans one. All right, it's, we reject it. But how do we how do we fight it? Well, Paul says in in Second Corinthians ten that our weapons are not carnal. They're, they're, we don't use earthly weapons anymore in in fighting against sin. So we fight against it through the power of the gospel. But what's happening in the church today is people are under pressure to redefine. They're, they're turning that previously was an abomination into a virtue. right? And, and so they say, well, that's why they conduct uh, pride parades. That's why we have Pride Month. And I would respond that the Bible says that pride goeth before destruction. And a haughty spirit, spirit will not fall. So... Pride parades are inviting God's wrath. And it, and it begins, people start by saying, well, this is a little compromise. But at the end of the road, you're compromising on huge issues. You're compromising on issue, issues that cause God to destroy and wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. God, God hates that stuff. And you, and you yeah, began with a little compromise. But a little compromise is like it's like asking a woman if she's just expecting, are you pregnant, and have her, have her say, well, I'm a little bit pregnant. Well, there's no such thing as a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant, pregnant, or not. if you're, you're pregnant, it's going to come to fruition. If you have compromised, and you and have, you said, have said, said we are going to accept man's authority over God's word, at this point. It doesn't matter how tiny that little point is. It's going to grow, and it's going to come to fruition. And when it comes to fruit, if it's unbelief, it's going to come to a, a radically demented form of unbelief, which is what we're seeing today. Your book, what is it called again? Southern Slavery As It Was, has got all sorts, yes. of, all sorts of reviews on the internet. For those who don't know what it is, what is it about and why is it so controversial? Okay, so uh, uh, let me begin with an overview of publications. So back in 96, together with a friend of mine, Slokins, we published a little booklet called Southern Slokins. I'll come back to that in a minute and tell you why we did it. Why we did it. Since that time, on that same topic, I published a book called Black and Tan, which is an expanded treatment of material in Southern slavery as it was. Black and Tan. And then I published another book called Skin and Blood, which is a biblical treatment of race relations. And then I had a long extended internet debate with Tabidi Anyabile uh, online that you can still find online with our, our various posts. So I've written a lot on this subject. Someone might say, well, why did you start writing on, you know, why did you start writing on this? Well, um, the, the, the thing that got us to publish in the first place was uh, back in that era, in the, when we published uh, Southern Slavery, there was a, 
there was a gentleman, there was a, there was a guy who, um, who wanted to be the, he wanted to be the John Brown of the pro-life movement. Now, uh, in America at that time, the pro-life movement had, there were, they were conducting, um, operation rescue, um, missions and, uh, you know, having people sitting in, shutting down abortion clinics. There was a, there was a time of high tension and it was a confrontational time. Uh, this, uh, fellow and I've, his name just escaped me. Um, but there was a, he, he wound up shooting an abortionist, shooting and killing an abortionist in Florida and was convicted, tried, convicted and executed for killing the abortionist. He was, I don't know if you know American history, but John Brown was uh, an abolitionist who tried to set off a race war before the American Civil War. He, he uh, conducted an attack on a place called Harbor's Ferry. Uh, he was tried and executed for that uh, abortive rebellion that he tried to set off. Um, this fellow was wanting to be the John Brown of the pro-life movement. He was wanting to set off a rebellion. We wrote the book Southern Slavery as it was because we were maintaining that the social problem of slavery was something that the New Testament directly addressed, teaching slaves how to be Christian slaves. And the kick in the teeth was it. the New, the New Testament repeatedly tells Christian masters how to be Christian masters. Um, you find that in 1 Timothy. You find it in Ephesians. You find it in Colossians. Um, the whole book of Philemon is a book about the Apostle Paul returning a runaway slave, Onesimus, to his Christian mentor, Philemon, who was a friend of Paul's. And uh, so we began this interview uh, with me saying, one of the things I learned is never apologize for anything in the Bible. So uh, what I wanted to say, and what we see in that booklet, is that uh, chattel slavery, as, as it existed in the United States um, uh, for the war between the states, was not a godly good system, but the New Testament provided instructions for us how to fight it, right? How, how, to, how to resist it. And John Brown was not doing that. John Brown was trying to address that social problem with violence. And we were saying that the United States ought to have eradicated slavery the same way it was eradicated in the British Empire, the same way it was eradicated throughout every other country in the world. We were the only, the United States was the only nation that uh, dealt with slavery by means of a war. And we killed 600,000 people in that war. So we, we, uh, we were basically in that booklet saying, we, we need to build the Bible. When, we, when we're trying to address social problems, we need to do what the Bible says do. Now, of course, because I was, we, we were arguing that the social problem of slavery was not the way the abolitionists represented it, and hence was the sort of thing that was sub to the biblical instructions, which... Um, if Southern slavery had been like the Jewish Holocaust or something like that, then it wouldn't have been a common circumstance. But we were arguing that American slavery was comparable to Roman slavery, 
and hence the New Testament destruction side. And so we should be, be obedient Christians and we should fight the outrage of slavery biblically. So, the, and, and, it, and it, that is the thing that puts people off because it's very easy to accuse someone who takes that, takes that position of racism. So I, I've been accused of being a racist ever since that, that time. Uh, although we have the main glory and, and ethnic malice are hateful to God. I believe that um, uh, whites and, and blacks and Asians and all, have no business pretending to have any ethnic superiority when it comes comes to carrying and bearing the God. And that kind of vainglory and that kind of malice is rejected also in the New Testament. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, male or female. Um, so it's always follow the Bible and don't let anybody back you away, away from scripture so that's that's why that was controversial uh there are a lot of people who don't like um standing with the bible because it, it will get you mm. in trouble i don't know who said it but <laughs> but but somebody once said well if it weren't for slavery we, we wouldn't have great rock music <laughs> <laughs> or the blues or the blues you know? yeah. which is of course where rock music comes from <laughs> uh, yeah in terms of race relations so i live in a country as you know that has extremely tense race relations um but yes. but let's be honest i think so does the united states and many other countries where does the bible where does the bible stand on race relations okay great that's a great question are the the race tension that you have there in south africa uh and that we have historically had um in the United States, those those sorts of tensions between ethnic groups are not nothing new. Um, uh, it's as old as human condition. Uh, so, uh, and then the New Testament, basically by bringing the gospel uh, and creating an international organism, which is the Christian Church. That's it's an international organism. That would mean. That if you were visiting, if if you were visiting the United States, and uh, to go to Dis Disneyland or something, you're going to hear over a uh, Sunday, and you came to our church, um, if you're baptized, because the church is an international, small C Catholic organization, if you're baptized, you're welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us, whether whether or not you're white or black or Gentile or Jew or male or female, the, uh, the New Testament, New Testament Christianity is, is radically egalitarian in this sense with regard to this issue. Uh, there is no privileged racial or ethnic group. I, 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 I prefer to say ethnic group over against racial group because I think there's only one race and that's the human race. So I think uh, uh, the Bible talks a great deal about tribes and ethnicities because the um, the nations in the Great Commission are the ethnoi, that, that we get ethnic uh, from that. So uh, I believe that, that the Christian church is radically open to all ethnicities from every tribe, language, tongue, nation. Uh, and so no Christian church has, has any business putting up a sign, a sign that says 
no blacks or no Asians or no, you, you just, uh, the church is not your tree fort that you get to put up a sign saying you people can't come in. So that's, that's, that's the teaching of the new Testament at the same time, the Bible doesn't erase or eradicate natural affections and natural relations. We still have fathers and mothers, which means that we have grandfathers and grandmothers, and we still have family reunions, and there's no sin involved in liking and appreciating and loving to get together with your people. That That's not a sin. The problem arises when you start becoming vainglorious about it. Our Wilson and family reunion is the best family in the world, and no, nobody else can come join us. As, as soon as you take that up, you've fallen into sin. So exclusivity should be celebrated, number one. Exclusive should be, you should be grateful for it. So every Christian should be grateful for what God gave him. So uh, the illust- this is the illustration I use. If Suppose it's Mother's Day. I don't know if you've got Mother's Day there in mm. South Africa. But let's say it's Mother's Day and you go to the card store to get your mom a card. And you see, you see two men in the card aisle and they get into a fist fight because uh, one of them saw that the other guy picked, picked out a card that said to the best mother in the whole world. And he said, no, my mother is the best mother in the whole world. And he took us at him. <laughs> Who are you? Who are you to say that your mother is the best mother uh, in the world when my mother is the best mother in the world? Ethnic competition is is stupid on that level. Okay, so uh, I am grateful for what God has given me. To take a simple example, I'm grateful for everything that God has given to me. That means I'm grateful that I'm a man. But that doesn't mean that I believe there's anything wrong with being a woman. Nothing wrong with it. A woman who is made by God as a woman it has the responsibility to be grateful that she's a woman and not a man. Um, a man who is grateful for being a man should be, be grateful for that and that he's not a woman. Um, if I, I can be grateful that I was born and raised in America and taught to appreciate certain foods, because if I'd be if I'd been born somewhere else, I might be eating that stuff, <laughs> right? Right? And it should delight that someone someone else, a, a Korean Christian, loves kimchi. They used to eat kimchi, and I can't I can't comprehend loving to eat that stuff. Uh, but it should delight me that he loves he. It should delight me that he likes it, and it should delight him that I like the stuff that I like. In other words, gratitude is, is, is easy to spread. Competition is the thing that is, a, is the toxic thing that gets in, the wrong kind of competition where you're trying to uh, claim that your mother is the best mother in the whole world. Uh, that kind of vainglory is the thing that uh, is just, I think, radically out of step with the New Testament. So, so, Doug, how do you then balance the dichotomy between what you're saying now and the very obvious problem of mass immigration? So the issue there uh, uh, for us and also for Europe uh, 
is the out of controlness of it. Okay, the, uh, so um, let's say I'm talking to um, a couple who, who've raised uh, five or six healthy Christian kids. They decide that they're going to start becoming foster parents, and they're going to take into their home two foster children, and they're going to, to take care of them, and, and, and they're really good foster parents. And then let's say someone comes up and says, I don't think you're good Christians at all, because if you were godly Christians, you would be willing to take these 300 foster children that I've got here in the truck. Okay, why don't, why don't you take 300 foster children? Well, because when they take two, two foster kids, they're loving two foster kids. If they took on 300, they're not loving anybody. You're, not, you're swamping the system. Uh, so uh, the, the problem with immigration here in the United States is not the fact of immigration. I mean, my people came here. Um, uh, the United States is a nation largely made up of immigrants, people who came at one time or another. Sometimes it was 40 years ago. Sometimes it was 240 years ago. But there, we should have, have no problem at all uh, with immigration. That's how we, how we built our, our nation. The problem has to do with the calculated way that it's being aimed, it's, it's been weaponized, and it's being aimed at cultures and institutions, overwhelming them so that they can't assimilate anything anymore. And this is uh, even more radical in Europe. With, with the United States, many of the immigrants from Mexico and South America are Many of them are Catholic or Pentecostal, but they are Western and they are Trinitarian Christian, at least in terms of their heritage. In Europe, it's Islamic, it's Muslim, it's not Trinitarian, and there's a there's more of a radical worldview divide. And the cultures and the the cultural artifacts, the institutions in Europe are consequently under a more serious siege because their ability to assimilate is going to be more challenged more rapidly than uh, America's will be. But, but that's the issue is assimilation. It's not the fact of immigration. Uh, they're all basically, I, I'm um, eager. We've, we've got various uh, immigrants that have come to Idaho from different nations and they're welcome, welcome in our church. We want to, you know, we want to help them assimilate. It, it, so the issue is the anarchy involved and the weaponization of it, not the fact of it. You know, I can confirm what you're saying. My wife and I were in France in 2019 and uh, more specifically Paris. And I was, I was quite surprised at the very low number of traditional white French people that I was expecting to see. I saw a huge percentage of every other nation and and of course many muslims and so if it's a if you're taking it taking them on uh, taking them in at a pace where you can assimilate and and create a race war or an ethnic war great wonderful but happening now is is really destructive there's one wit over here who defined democracy as three coyotes and a sheep voting on what to have. And 
what what happens in pure democracies is a mob it turns into rule and it turns into a pillaging of those who are better off i believe that any any healthy society should have a democratic small d democratic element in it but it should not be a democracy so our our constitution is uh, that of a republic not a, not a democracy so we have three branches of government the executive which is the president the legislative which is congress and the judicial which is the court system and and the legislative body is divided in two whether you have the Senate and the House. The one democratic element in it is the House of Representatives. And I think that's just about just right. I think you want, you want a uh, country that um, has a way of talking to the people and has a way of talking to the people's representative representatives, and there's a high degree of accountability there. Our, our representatives are reelected every two years, high, high rate turnover. Uh, so I think that democratic um, presence is good, but I think that it has to have democracy. You know, if you had bad democratic government where everybody's TV remote had a voting button, yes or no, and you could vote on referenda. Um, here we're presenting this, and the whole and 60 million people vote all at once. I think that'd be chaos and awful. Um, that kind of democracy gives me the willies. I, I think it's really, really, uh, really bad. And, and so uh, what we need to do, and this is what happened in the Reformation, is I, I said earlier, you want to find a Bible-believing church. You want to find a church that preaches and teaches from the Word of God. And that means it will be a church that governs itself. There will be a church government, and the government of the church is not a democracy. The government of the church is it's a church a healthy church is governed by elders the elders are elected by the congregation but the elders are the ones who make decisions so the reason uh the reason we have the republican forms of government that we have is because in the protestant reformation there were there were many years of beta testing of forms of government the people who governed themselves in churches had worked out a lot of the bugs and our, our civil form of government was an inheritance from ecclesiastical government and that ecclesiastical government was republican not democratic or could you put it another way and say a theocracy yes in, in theocracy i wanted to define the term so uh, yes, a theocracy in that the laws are based upon the word God, but not a theocracy in the sense that we still have a living prophet uh, who who gets message from God. Uh, like the Pope. In real time, like the like like the Pope. So I don't want a I don't want a democracy. Uh, excuse me. I don't want a theocracy where you have ayatollahs who speak for God. Mm. Um, I don't want the authority authority vested in them, but I do want a government that has laws that are based upon the will of God and not upon the will of an oligarchy at the top, not on the will of certain secular humanists. So I'm, I'm fond of telling people that theocracies 
are inescapable. The only thing you have a choice about is which God is going to be the God out of the system. Mm. So in a democracy, Demos, the people, is the God of the system. In an oligarchy, the oligos, the few, are the God of the system. In an aristocracy, the aristos, the best, are the God of the system. And I want the God of the system to be a father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, th I believe that we ought to, I think, our, I think our nation ought to be an explicitly Christian nation. And I believe the same thing about South Africa. But we've seen now in the last three years how this, 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 this scam has shown and revealed the oligarchical nature of just about the entire world. Yes, correct. There, there's a handful of people at the top the global elites who want you to eat bugs and happy, who want to take away your car, who want to take away all these things. And they think they have this hubristic conceit that tells them that they have the right to run your life as though they were lords of the earth. But they're not. Jesus is Lord. And so consequently, this is the thing about theocracy. The fundamental con Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. So if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And, and if I'm a Calvinist, which means that I believe that Jesus is Lord over everything. Jesus is Lord in everything. And if, if the state exiles um, the authority of Jesus Christ, they're going to want to be the God of, God of Calvinism. They're going to want to be the predestining God. They're going to want to run every aspect and detail of my life. Life, Well, Nicholson's father is someone I can trust to do that. But these, these fallen and, and corrupt people who want to destine everything, no, no, thank you. No, 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 no. Is heaven, therefore, open to every person? Um, how do you mean? Does God elect John who, who's going to go there or not? John 3.16. I just mentioned that I'm a Calvinist, which means that I believe that God, before the world was created, has sovereign how it's going to go. But that sovereign God has told Christian ministers in the Mark, he said, preach, preach the gospel to every creature. And the gospel is the message of repent and belief. So um, the, every person that I can present the gospel to as a minister of Christ, I am authorized to invite them to come to heaven with me. The, the final determination is God's mm. decision, but I'm to preach the gospel to every creature. The invitation, there's the, the, the gospel offer is made to every man. By extension, hatred is not something a Christian should express then. Well, it's what you hate. So it goes back to the same thing of uh, uh, conservative, conservative and progressive. There's certain things that um, you can't tell if it's a virtue or a vice until you hear the direct object. So if I said, I love fill in the blank, or I hate fill in the blank, you don't know if that's a virtuous sta statement or not until you hear the direct object. I say, I love my mom. Ah, it's a virtuous statement. I love ch child pornography. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. That's an evil statement. I hate child pornography. Oh, that's a virtuous statement. I hate the de devil and all his works. That's a vir virtuous statement.
idle ice cream. That's a different kind of state, you know. So I don't know if it's virtuous or vicious until I know what the object is. So I can say I hate injustice. The, the, um, in Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Okay, that, that's the fear of the Lord. Uh, and then John in First John says, love not the world or the things in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And the verb there is agapao, agape love, love not the world, don't love certain things. So sometimes loving is sinful and sometimes refusal to, to hate is sinful. It all depends on what you love and, and what you hate and why. I want to ask you about your experience with Christopher Hitchens. All right, so what happened was uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great. He, was, he had quite a following. I'm, I'm, as it happens, uh, my, my son-in-law and um, got his doctorate at Oxford in England. And my wife and I visited uh, our, our daughter and, and son-in-law and their kids a few times. And while there, um, made the acquaintance of and became friends with Peter Hitchens, Christopher's brother. So I met uh, Peter who had been an atheist and a, and a leftist like Christopher, but had become had come back to the faith. So Peter is um, is a Christian Anglican Christian uh, and fighting the good there. So I, I became acquainted with him. And then shortly after that, just a matter of weeks, Christopher over in the States released his book, God is Not Great. And he, um, he to his credit, didn't want the book release party to be uh, in Manhattan, where a bunch of Manhattan atheists got together and ate and drank wine and congratulated Christopher. He wanted his book release tour to be a debate tour. So he, he issued this attack on faith and published the book. And I think his, his first book release event was Arkansas. He, so he threw out this challenge, take all comers, in debating, um, and so he debated. Kind of, he debated rabbis, and he debated Al Sharpton, and he debated fundamentalists. He just debated all kinds of people for this review, a book release thing. Uh, my agent and a friend of mine, a gent named Aaron Wrench, contacted Christianity Today and said, "Would you be interested in publishing a written debate between Wilson and Hitchens?" And they said, "Sure, we'd do that." And so uh, Aaron then contacted Hitchens, who had issued this come one, come all change, and would you agree to a written debate as part of this book release thing, which he agreed to do. And so we had a written exchange in Christianity Today online, and that written exchange got a good bit of traction. It got a, got a, a good bit of mention. A little bit after that, Moscow. Uh, uh, decided to release that book, uh, re release that online exchange as, as a small book uh, entitled Is Christianity Good for the World? So we released that book, and which Christopher agreed. And for the, for the book, uh, for the release event, um, we had a book release tour that Aaron, Aaron set up where Christopher and I appeared first in New York City at King's College in the Empire State Building, um, then appeared at in Philadelphia, Westminster Seminary, and then in Georgetown, um, the D.C. area. 
or Christopher lived. So, so we had three public clashes or debates, and a filmmaker named Darren Doan accompanied us, us and took about a hundred hours of footage of these debates, both on stage and behind the scenes and forth. Uh, um, and then the, the, uh, a documentary was made out of that called Kishin. So if you want to go there and see sort of the end product of that, there's a there's a documentary called Collisions about the Wilson-Hitchens debate. Uh, Christopher and I got along really well together. Um, and um, just we hit it off. And he was uh, he was never rude to me except on stage. So um, on stage, uh, on stage in a debate, it was part of his shtick. It was part of his thing. Um, but we would, if we had breakfast together, or if we, you know, staying in the same place or, or um, sharing meals together, uh, we hit it off. We just got along um, uh, very well. Um, and. Then after a collision was made, there was there were a few other incidents. I appeared one with him at a Christian booksellers um, convention in uh, I think it was in yeah it was in Dallas. There was a there was a and, and so we appeared on a panel. There was a panel of like three or four Christians. Uh, William Lane was there and Lee Strobel was there and I was there and Christopher was was the one atheist on the panel. And there was a room packed, probably 900,000 Christians uh, packed <laughs> packed into this room for this panel discussion. And I remember making a crack. I said, Christopher here has been uh, thrown into a pack, uh, been thrown into a den of lambs. <laughs> so um, uh, so we had those exchanges. And then he was diagnosed with um, esophageal cancer. and. Uh, I, I had a little bit of correspondence with him during that time. And before he passed away, I wrote him a letter. Uh, uh, I wrote him a long letter uh, laying out the gospel for Christopher and uh, attached it to an email. I sent him an email with this as an attachment. And I said, Christopher, I'll, I have no way of knowing if you read this letter or not. I just want you to have it in your possession. Uh, if you don't read it, you'll be sorry because there's, there's some really good writing in there. Uh, so, but here it is. Use it how you want. I so I sent that to him. There's a guy uh, um, named Larry Tolan who wrote a book called The Faith of Christ Christopher Hitchens, and uh, and I think Larry Tolan was also debated Christopher during that time, and I think, I think Larry Taunton's book is. Uh, very insightful on this point. Uh, if, if someone says, uh, do you, you believe that uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, repented or uh, called on the Lord or anything like that before he died? I have no evidence that he did that. But I do have evidence that he was, it was something that was on his mind, um, if that makes sense. Because when after he was diagnosed with cancer, um, he said a few things. He was asked publicly in some interviews, are you having any second thoughts about this God thing now that you're going to die? And he would say things like, well, if you hear, if you hear that Christopher Hitchens has cried out to God on his deathbed, uh, you can be assured that the cancer got to my brain 
or the medications mess me up, that sort of thing. So he was, uh, he gave a flippant uh, answer, but the answer revealed to me that he was worried about, about it. He was, he, and he prepared, a, basically prepared a story for his followers, his fans. Um, so he put that out there. Taunton's thesis, which I think is true, is that Christopher was intrigued by Christianity and Christians, but he he wasn't in a position to start having lunch with the Archbishop, because if he did that, that was going to attract attention. And so his, his debate, his invitation to debate all comers was a way for, for him to spend time with Christians. It was a way for him to to be around us and to talk to us and to listen quietly. So um, if one said, do you think Christopher Hitchens called on the Lord before he died? I, I, I would emphasize I have no evidence that he did, but I also would not rule it out. Your engagement with him that was public, the, the debates, etc. In in your mind, were they were they more theatrical, or did they have meaning in terms of how the public responded? The arguments had substance, so it was it was not just a um, uh, a show of lightsabers, you know, flashing. Um, so the arguments had substance, and Christopher was really intent, and he could follow follow the arguments, and he could mount credible arguments himself. But where there were times where if he got pinned, if it you know if it was he was just sort of trapped in a corner, uh, there were times where he, he would get out by means of a witticism. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I, I won't won't say that it was serious hating on the merits and on the substance every level all the all the time. Uh, he was a, Christopher Hitchens was a wit. He was not just an intellectual. He was also a wit, and he could make a joke that disarmed the you know you know would cause your your point to fall to the floor, and you could recognize you didn't answer the question, right? But he got away with it. He was good at. It. He was very very good. How can I follow your work? Probably the best way is I have a blog. The address is uh, dougwills.com, D-U-G-W-I-L-S.com. And I'm involved in a bunch of things, but if you go to that blog, there, it's a portal to pretty much everything I'm involved with. Um, so um, whether it's New St. Andrews College or Logos School or um, Can Press or whatever, you, if you can go to dougwills.com, which is my blog, on the front page there, you can pretty much go anywhere. Including your books. Into my books, yeah. Doug Wilson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Yeah, happy to be here. My name is Germ. This right. is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.